Good morning. This morning's reading is John 12, verses 20 to 32. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life this world, in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Dee, um, for that. And, and yeah, let's thank the worship team again. Just uh, praise God. <laughs> Praising God for his work um, in and through our, our, our church. Just, it's, it's a joy to get to worship, as, as, as Joel said earlier, as a, as a family together. So um, my name is Dave. I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Tucson, and um, just a, a couple things I want to make sure that we're aware of before I introduce my good friend John Ori, who's going to be um, preaching uh, with us this morning. I, I want to make us aware again about what we've got going on, very exciting things going on with Good Friday and um, Easter services. Coming up on April 19th is a Good Friday, and then on April 21st is, um, is our Easter celebration together, where we here in our congregation, as well as churches around Tucson and then churches around the world, will, will celebrate the life-defining good news that Jesus, um, though he died and laid down his life, he rose from the dead victoriously, and how that defines every aspect of life. And so on our Good Friday service, if you'll go back there to that one, um, is we spend some significant time um, as a church. It's about an hour-long service where we really enter into the reality of the effects of sin and the good news that Jesus laid down his life. And so um, we have what's been historically called a service of shadows, and, and it's, um, it's a very serious and intentional time, and we want to encourage and invite you to come to that, that service. Um, again, we will have um, we will have Redemption Kids 
um, classes, two classes available, um, and, and there will be all this information going out online. If you're not signed up yet, please do give us your info so we can make sure to keep you up to date on all those things. But I want to encourage you to be at that. And then, again, on Sunday, for the first time ever, um, we're going to be having two services. Just because lo- last year, we just saw, wow, we couldn't really invite any other friends or any other people um, if we just keep to one service. So with that, just want to cast some vision, okay, on two things is, is this, is one is if you call Redemption Church your home, um, we would invite you and ask you and encourage you to serve on that Sunday. The fact that we have two services mean that you could serve at one and then um, be here to celebrate and worship with your family at another. But a part of that is as followers of Jesus, we want to go out of our way to be hospitable to people who perhaps don't know the good news of Jesus, don't know the gospel, don't even know what Easter's all about. And that has historically been one of the services that people will come to. Okay, so on that note, I encourage you, um, if you're someone who typically thinks, oh, I go home somewhere else, for Easter. This is a great opportunity to invite your friends and family, especially if they don't traditionally go to a service or something like that. Bring them here. Right? And if you go back to Phoenix or something like that, invite them here. From our very first Easter service about five years ago, um, that, that was the case. It was an incredible time. So again, just want to cast that vision. We'll have two services. And again, we'll have um, classes um, uh, available for kids um, uh, infants and toddlers on, on um, Easter. And it's a shorter service, and, and it's just an incredible celebratory time. Um, amen? All right. Amen means we're tracking. So I don't know if John, our, our, our preacher this morning, is used to, to, to some amens. I am, and I'll just call for him because I'm more comfortable with that. But since John's a guest, he might not. So I'm going to just encourage you, right? When you're, when you're tracking and you agree, shout out an amen. Um, there we go. So on that note, I'm really excited to invite up my friend um, John Ori this morning, who works with See Jesus Ministries, which is the ministries that the book Love Walked Among Us in, in the sermon series that we've been really using that, as we've said, as a tour guide through really looking at the person and work and character of Jesus on display. And that's what we've been walking through since the beginning of the new year. And um, John is going to be heading back home to L.A. Um, very soon in a couple days. So we uh, reached out and got a hold of him right before he left to come here and preach and uh, walk us through this sermon this morning. So um, John is, is again, a great friend, and I'm excited to hear from him. So let's go ahead and um, welcome him as he makes his way up here. Thank you, Dave. I appreciate um, being here. I appreciate the invitation. Um, my family and I, we live in Southern California, and I uh, serve with See Jesus, and um, Paul Miller's my boss, and so uh, we uh, are, were temporarily living out here in Arizona in Scottsdale for the last couple months, and so we had the privilege of actually making the rounds to all of the re- uh, different redemption congregations, and so Tucson is the last and last but not least, and so um, um, the, uh, the other churches, as they were hearing that we were going to be visiting, and, and they said, hey, where else are you going, and where else are you preaching? I said, oh, we're going to be in Tucson, and inevitably, people would say, oh, Dave and, and Stephen, the pastors down there, they're great guys, and, 
And a lot of people would say, you know, Dave uh, is just a really good guy. And I said, yeah, I've, I've been able to spend a lot of time with Dave, and, and he really is a good guy. Amen? Amen. <laughs> so I embarrassed Dave a little bit, but uh, Dave, don't get too high, because um, one of the privileges I've had is I've been out here quite a bit, and I've been able to uh, meet different people and do different trainings. And so one of the trainings, not too long ago, I had the privilege of having Kira Goffney in the, the training group that I was in. And uh, after I met Kira, I just realized, Dave really isn't that nice. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> so uh, it's my privilege and, and my joy to be with you here this morning. And uh, I am just so excited for the Redemption Churches as you have been walking through, uh, watching and seeing and I trust loving Jesus. Now, the great thing about this series is uh, if, if you base it on three simple truths, then you can get the whole series. Uh, the first truth is that God is love, and so love in its purest form originates from God and in God. Number two, Jesus is God, that's the heart of the gospel message. That's what sets Christianity apart from every other religion, is that Jesus is not just the most perfect man who ever walked the face of the earth, but literally is God. And therefore, when we see Jesus walking in the pages of Scripture, we see love in motion. And that's the third point. And so as we watch Jesus, we watch perfect love animated. And so this series has been one in which we have the privilege and joy of slowing down and watching love move. And so I wanted to, to begin with a story of where I really saw love moving. Uh, I have the privilege of being able to, to travel uh, here and there, and so earlier last year, uh, I had the privilege of traveling back to Nepal uh, with my, one of my sons, and when we got to Nepal, one of our partners there had arranged for us to fly from Kathmandu to the far west part of Nepal, and as we were there, uh, people were asking us, and Nepali people were asking us, hey, are you going anywhere else besides uh, Kathmandu? And I said, well, we're going to this place called Dongadi, and they said, we would never want to go to Dongadi. And if you know scripture, it's kind of like, you know, Jesus, uh, nothing good could come out of Nazareth. What good could come out of Nazareth? And so we head out to the far west part uh, in Dangari. We get there, and uh, we're driven on a motorcycle out and discover that uh, we have the privilege of being able to train pastors who are farmers who were former indentured servants and not too long ago were released by the government of their debt, their debt uh, to the government. And so as we walk into this little concrete building, I notice there's a house next door that's really ornate and, and uh, for Nepali standards, and it was a beautiful house, and I discover, oh, one of the main elders of the church uh, built a house next to the church building. The main pastor of the church uh, is a man named Alicia, and he begins to tell me the story of how he came to Christ, 
how uh, he had this call to ministry, how he continues to farm the land. People come to Christ, and then he just says, I, I just began to pray that God would provide money for this building we're standing in. And then he tells this miraculous story of how God literally just funneled the money right in and built the church. And so I'm hearing all this, I'm just humbled. And, 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 and then one day, on my last day there, Alicia goes deeper into the story. And he says, you know, it, it wasn't always this easy. I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, after the church was growing both in number and the building was being built, he said, uh, the elders in the church decided they didn't want me or like me as a leader. So they all came to me and they said, uh, we don't like the way you're doing things. We're going to take uh, as many people as we can and we want half the assets of what the church owns. So can you imagine, you know, you have two speakers. Are you going to take one speaker and leave one speaker? And, and so Alicia was telling me this story, and he just said, uh, I just didn't know what to do. These are people that he journeyed with, loved. Their families spent time together. And all Alicia could say at that particular point is he said, I was just sad. What do you do when you're just sad? What do you do when you're in a place, in a season, in a relationship where you have been walking with people, actually people very close to you, and as you grow closer and it gets more exciting, something happens which causes great hurt and great sadness. Now let me rephrase the question a little bit. Let's say that uh, it's not only something like that, but you knew ahead of time that this might happen. You knew that if you entered into this situation, this relationship, this opportunity, that there was a chance that you might be hurt, would you still do it? Would you still do it? Um, as we look at today's passage, we watch Jesus love in and through sadness. And so before we jump into, let me pray, and then we'll jump into this morning's text. Lord, we pray that you, Jesus, would uh, just shine and as we look and watch you in Scripture, that we would just see the full beauty of you as fully human. And so just bless our time and may you be exalted in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we dive deep in today's passage, I want to briefly set the story in context if we turn to chapter back in John 11, we find Mary and Martha, sisters, weeping because their brother, Lazarus, has died. And everyone has this sense that Jesus was called, but Jesus, they didn't say it out loud, you're too late. And so Jesus seemingly arrives too late, and yet he raises Lazarus miraculously from the dead 
as chapter 12 begins, Jesus, we find Jesus in Bethany enjoying uh, uh, an intimate dinner with the three siblings. These are dear friends of his. Now, try to imagine that literally Lazarus just been raised from the dead. They're now sitting having dinner and what the conversation must have been like as they recalled the story. And then Jesus, you know, they were, we sent somebody and then you didn't come in time and then we couldn't. And, and then, then there he is and he was really smelly, but it was wonderful that our brother was there. And so then the next day, Jesus leaves Bethany and he moves towards Jerusalem. And as he approaches the great city, word has spread like wildfire about Lazarus' healing. And so naturally, a great crowd begins to gather to welcome him into Jerusalem. They're waving palm branches, and in verse 13 of chapter 12, we see that they're crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Momentum for Jesus is at an all-time high. Jesus is not only trending, he's going viral. And so the local buzz around town is that He's the Messiah. He's the one. And so as he enters into the city to gather, an, uh, they, they anticipate that he's here at the biggest city to gather an army to finally overthrow the Romans. And so there is so much momentum that even the Pharisees say to one another in verse 19, look, the whole world has gone after him. So you kind of feel the momentum building and building. It's a glorious time, but not all is meant to be as it appears. There's a few details in the story that kind of hint at this, and I want to mention three very quickly. One, it says this momentum and this time was during the Passover. It was six days before the Passover, the Jewish celebration to commemorate God saving his people from the angel of death by putting the blood of an unblemished lamb upon the, door the, the uh, doorpost. And therefore, the angel of death would pass over the doorpost and the people were saved. It's not coincidental that the people are celebrating God, sparing the people from death by the blood of another. Hint, hint, wink, wink. Number two, Jesus is riding on a donkey, and if Jesus is truly a king, he should be riding on a horse. That's what conquering kings did. In modern-day times, Jesus should be riding on the back of a convertible Rolls Royce, but he's arriving on a scooter, and that even being a used scooter. Thirdly, Jesus, as he enters in on the scooter... We find him in Luke 19, 41. It says that as he saw the city, he began to weep. What kind of king ascends to the throne with tears in his eyes? And so all of this is important to keep in mind as we entered in today's passage. Why? Because... Jesus is fully aware of the significance of the time. The triumphal entry is not leading to his coronation, but something quite the opposite, and Jesus knows it. So now when we look at verse 20, it says, Now among those... Uh, by the way, I forgot. If you need a Bible, feel free to raise your hand. <laughs> some of the passages will be up here. Some of us, including myself, have a hard... Well, actually, not that many of you, but some of you may have a hard time... 
seeing the screen and you need a Bible, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. They have them there, and they'd be glad to give you one. But as we look at verse 20, now among those who went up to the worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethesda and in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Isn't it interesting that in verse 19, the Pharisees complain, the whole world's going after him. And in the very next verse, it says some Greeks, some Gentiles came looking for him. And so the news should have excited Jesus. I think it it got got the disciples kind of excited, like there's these Greeks and they're looking for you, Jesus. And the reason why is because there is this sense of growing momentum, of popularity. And so Jesus should have naturally kind of got excited this, but it actually sparked a sense of concern. You see, the prophet Isaiah predicted that those from the coastlands or the islands would come and seek the Messiah. And so chapter 41 of Isaiah, chapter 42, chapter 49, chapter 51, chapter 50, over and over and over again, they refer to when the time of the Messiah comes, people from the coastlands would be searching for him. And so this was not just a visit from curious foreigners. This was a sign that the time had come. How do we know? Because Andrew and Philip tell Jesus the Greeks want to see him, and look how he responds. So Jesus, these guys are coming here to see you. And in verse 23, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Isn't that kind of odd? Jesus, these guys from the islands, from the, from the Greeks, they're here to see you. The time has now come for the man, Son of Man to be glorified. So if this was a movie and I was the director, this is where I would kind of, you know, the Greeks are looking, and it's like the whole world is looking for you. He had the triumphal entry. And this is the moment where I would have a close-up of Jesus' face and as they say, they're here to see you, it's kind of like I would zoom the camera out And as I zoom it out, the music would begin to build, and Jesus would begin to stand a little bit taller. And there would be this sense of this pacing and this growing of volume and this triumphant sense. And so then you would wait for what to hear, what he's going to say. And in verse 24, he would say this, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Wrong script, Jesus. Remember, we're we're zooming in and we're zooming out. You're standing up straighter. There's a momentum. There's a crescendo. And yes, you should say, the time has come and I am here. No, he says... A seed, a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies. And then if it dies, it bears fruit. So let's slow down and think about this here a little bit. You want to know what the Son of Man looks like to be glorified? You want to know what the triumphal entry leads towards? Most of us, including myself, if I was to write the script, I would say it's like an eagle soaring to the highest peak as the sun rises over the Catalina foothills. 
What does it look like? It's like a rocket thrusting at the speed of light into unknown parts of the galaxy. But no, the biblical script is the ascension of the Son of Man. It looks like a piece of wheat falls in the dirt and dies. Jesus, you raised a man from the dead. The holy city welcomed you like a conquering king. The whole world is seeking after you. What's going to happen next? I'm going to die. He is a king, but a king like no other. You see, the shape of the script of the life of Jesus is like this. It's really simple. It, it moves from life to death to resurrection. And the ministry I serve with, we call this the J-curve because I always get it backwards. I got to go. It, it, it moves like the letter J from life to death to resurrection. Two thousand years later, we can look and say, "Oh, of course, Jesus' life moves from life to death to resurrection." But to those who were hearing at the time, it, it didn't really make much sense. In fact, at another time, when Jesus was explaining very explicitly to his disciples about the J curve, he said, "I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be raised on the third day." In Matthew 16, Peter was so disturbed that he took Jesus aside and rebuked him and said, Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And in verse 23, Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Jesus knew that as the Messiah, he was not called to be a brilliant king, shouting victory as he rode his white stallion into the city. As the Messiah chosen by God, he was a humble king, riding a donkey, weeping for a city as he headed toward his death. How did Peter feel about this script? He didn't like it. How do I feel about this script? I didn't like it. If this was your script of your life, you wouldn't like it. None of us feel good about this storyline. But how does Jesus feel about it? Skip down to verse 27. We're going to come back to verse 25 and 26. Keep that in mind. John chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus says, as he has, as he has a sense of the time, as he has a sense that it's going to lead to his death, it says very clearly in John chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus says, now is my soul troubled. In the New Living Translation, it says, my soul is deeply troubled. And in the message paraphrase, it says, right now I am storm-tossed. That phrase, troubled in spirit, is the same phrase used to describe how Jesus felt earlier in chapter 11 when he was grieving that Lazarus had died. He was troubled. And so there's a, there's a sense of sadness to that term. There's a sense of loss. It's also the exact same phrase that's used to describe how Jesus feels when he anticipates that Judas is going to betray him. And so there's not just a sense of sadness, but there's a sense of hurt. And so as 
Jesus faces the script that is to come, and he knows what is to come. He feels sad. There's a sense of an anticipation of pain, and he's just tense. Paul Miller writes, the Prince of Peace is tense. Jesus models tenseness for us. He isn't a robot as he deals with pain. Judas had traveled with him, laughed with him, and cried with him from the very beginning of ministry. Now Judas was about to betray him. Jesus fills that loss. It just hurts. And so as Jesus faces the time of his death, he's tense, he's troubled, he's anticipating pain. Try to picture it. When you're tense, try to think about it from the head down. Your face kind of tenses up, at least mine does. The body stiffens up a little bit. Maybe our voices quake a tiny bit, maybe a tiny hint of uh, fighting off some tears. When we're tense, it's kind of hard to organize our thoughts. Some of you looked in the mirror and you said, I saw that this morning. I get that. But as you picture that in the face of Jesus, in other words, as you imagine Jesus being troubled, does that trouble you a little? What I mean by that is to picture Jesus being troubled, does that bother you a tiny bit? For some of us, we might be thinking, yeah, me feeling hurt and troubled, I get that. You feeling uh, troubled, yes, I get that. But Jesus feeling storm-tossed? That makes me a little uneasy. Why? Well, because he's Jesus? Now, if you told me, hey, John, uh, you're about to be brutally tortured, separated from your loved ones, die a horrific, public, shameful death. John, how do you feel about that? And if I said, I feel wonderful and I can't wait, what would you think? It's crazy. Crazy. Or what if you said all of that, and you looked at me and go, how do you feel about that? And I said, it's all good, it won't be bad. And you'd be thinking, he doesn't really get it. He's not facing reality. Jesus is fully in touch with reality, and he's definitely not crazy. Then why does he feel tense? Because Jesus is a person. He is fully God, but he's also a perfect person. Feelings are a part of being human. If you come from a Buddhist background, you know that Buddhists believe that the problem with pain is that we actually feel it. So the goal is to try not to feel it or separate yourself from the pain. But when we do that, we deny a part of what it means to be made in the image of God because part of being human is actually sometimes feeling pain. There was, I recently read an article of a woman in the UK who they discovered, she's in her 70s now, but she really feels no pain or anxiety. And it's not just because of a sensory thing. Um, I mean, she, she didn't feel uh, pain in childbirth. 
they gave her all these tests about anxiety, and she always scored a zero. And, and so um, they were discovering that there was a gene that was very rare where the front half of the gene was somehow mutated. And so they were studying her. They are fascinated by it. Uh, there's some benefits to that, obviously, but obviously there's great danger. So she, she didn't realize that her hip was disjointed because she hadn't felt the pain until her husband was watching the way she was walking. And so the, it's interesting they called the gene, there was a mutation. It, it wasn't supposed to be that way. You see, as Jesus is human and walking the earth and fully without sin, he still feels tense. Jesus is not plastic. He's not devoid of feelings. And Jesus is definitely not Buddhist. He's anticipating a betrayal, a horrific torture, being separated from his father and dying an unjust death. He feels sadness, he feels troubled, and he should. Now, this should encourage us minimally for two reasons. Number one, that tells us at times it's okay for you to feel sad or troubled. When life is hard, when you face pain, betrayal, difficulty, it's okay to feel disappointment. Sometimes the healthiest response to pressure is to feel pressed. And number two, this should give us comfort about Jesus because we have a Savior who has feelings. If you're old enough, and it looks like most of you probably are, most of you are not, but for those of us who are old enough, if you watched old films of Jesus in Sunday school class, and, some of, and I mean literally they put the film thing and it's kind of spinning and shows it there. In Sunday school class, we would watch the film and you'd see Jesus kind of in the 70s. And when they picture Jesus, the actor would always be kind of like, uh, almost glowing, and it was almost like he was floating above the uh, ground. He was like his feet wasn't on, and then you almost kind of held, heard this kind of like, oh. And there's this sense they want to magnify, obviously, that he's, he's God. But there's a sense that he has definitely got two feet on the ground. He's felt pain, and he understands your pain. So at times, it's okay to feel tense, sad, or hurt. With that being said, just because we're feeling something strongly, it also doesn't mean it has to own us. There are two feelings or two extremes when it comes to sadness or pain. One is to deny it and just to say, it's all good, it's not there, and I don't want to feel it. And the other extreme, on the other end, is to feel it so fully and to embrace it so fully that we be completely consumed and dominated by it. Not Jesus. Jesus feels troubled because he is about to die, and yet he's also not frozen, dominated by that sadness. Because look at the rest of verse 27. Jesus says, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Remember, this is right after he says, I, I feel tense. And so what am I going to say? Father, save me from this hour. Jesus is troubled, but he says, 
What am I going to do? Run? I can't because this is what I was sent to do. In today's culture, there is a sense that we really value authenticity. And authenticity in ourselves is a good thing. We want the outside of what we show to match the inside of what, who we truly are. So that's not a bad thing. But sometimes the way that authenticity is defined is that if you feel something on the inside, then to be fully authentic, you've got to express that to the fullest on the outside. And if you keep feeling that on the inside, then keep expressing it on the outside. And wherever it expresses it on the outside, let it take you wherever it goes because that's being authentic. I want to speak specifically to the young people. You know who you are. Some of you think you are, but you're not. But most of you are young. I think I'm one of the young people, but I'm not. I won't point out who's young and who's not. But especially the young people in the room. There is a sense in our culture, in our universities, that is encouraging us to be able to not only feel, but to feel fully without, all, without any sense of control. If you feel it, then feel it. And if you feel it, then do it until you stop feeling it. So if, you're, if, you're, if you feel um, good about this other person and you're in love with this other person, then go with it. And then if you find out that you guys are dating or maybe even put the ring on the finger and get married, but you're, you find out, I, I'm not feeling it anymore. Then don't do it because that's being inauthentic. Uh, another way of kind of putting this framework, the Bible just says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Or another way of saying it is everyone did whatever they felt. Now keep in mind again, feelings in of themselves are not necessarily wrong. What I'm saying is that in, in, in we, to be made in the image of God means that we do have feelings, but we can't forget that we also have a mind. Jesus felt appropriately sadness, trouble. And yet he was not solely consumed by it. We cannot use our souls, our, our feelings as a compass. Why? Because they're not always correct. Yeah, I don't doubt we feel them, but it doesn't mean they're always correct. And so young people just know in a weird sort of way, just because you feel something strongly, you don't have to act on it. In a weird sort of way, you're not a robot. The feelings that are hardwired sometimes or miswired sometimes doesn't determine our action. We have to evaluate them and what God is doing and then look at what God says and then ultimately do what God says. Sometimes it does feel good and sometimes it doesn't. Jesus felt troubled because he was facing trouble, yet Jesus moves towards that trouble because he knew it was right in the Father's eyes. He knew what God's purpose was for his life. And in verse 28, Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. Worship. And so there's this sense of he's wrestling and he's troubled, 
But he goes, what else am I going to do? For I know what is right. And isn't it interesting that he just says, uh, Father, glorify your name. Do you realize worship is naturally what happens when you surrender your life to him and live for him? And so if you are one who is potentially dominated solely by your feelings, I dare to say to you that uh, if we are always dominated by our feelings, it will be extremely, extremely difficult to obey the one that gives your life purpose. At the same time, if we do not obey the one who gave our life purpose, then we will fail at times to experience true worship. Why is this so important to understand? Well, one, because we need to really see the beauty of Jesus. But the second reason is because of the verses I skipped over. So let's turn back to 25 and 26, and let's kind of end here. Uh, Jesus, you know, when he's describing that, hey, the, the, the seed's going to die, and it's going to be raised, and Jesus feels tense about that, and then he surrenders, and he worships his Father. In between there, Jesus says, hey, my, I'm going to die and rise. And then verse 25, he says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor me. Jesus says, look, this is what my life is going to look like. Kind of like that letter J. And there is a sense that if you're going to follow me, your life is going to take a similar pattern, a similar shape. And so, in other words, the J-curve is not only the shape of Jesus' life, but also of those who follow him as well. And so, if Jesus' life moved from death to resurrection, as we follow him, our life will be shaped in the same way. Not just for all of eternity, but also right here, right now. So, what does it mean to die? Do we literally, like, share in Christ's punishment and bodily resurrection? Of course not. We can't go back in time. We don't relive all of that but we can reenact it. In other words, your life as a follower of Jesus will be full of many deaths, challenges, suffering, sacrifice, obedience, and also real-time resurrections like inner transformation of heart, amazing things that God does in your life. Theologian J.R. Packers puts it this way, for this is to be the pattern of our whole lives. Through love and obedience and the tribulations of pain and loss for Jesus' sake, we enter into a thousand little deaths day by day. And through the ministry of the Spirit, we rise out of the little dust into constantly reoccurring experiences of, Christ's chrism, uh, of the risen life of Christ. So very quickly, what if I'm going to walk in the footsteps and the shape of the life of Jesus? What is it going to look like? Generally speaking, death can look three different ways. Generally speaking, it all relates to where trouble is. First, first type of death. Trouble's here. Trouble comes at me. That's called suffering. I go and lament, ask the Father for help, I endure. Secondly, trouble is inside of me. I discover it. I repent. Christ crucifies the flesh and I become more like him. The third one is trouble is out here. It's not coming at me. 
and I willingly move towards it. And that's called love. That one is what makes Christianity, and forgive me for saying it this way, that one, when trouble's over here and I still move towards it because of love, that one is what makes Christianity stupid. Like we often think when we think about love, what are the feelings of love? It's passionate. It's happiness. It's desire. But if we love, truly love like Jesus at times, love will inevitably feel like hurt, sadness, and a desire to run the other way. And if that's you in a relationship or a friendship or a marriage, and you're feeling that, that may be a point of not where you're being inauthentic, but where you're truly being challenged to love. So most of us don't want to deal with that. And yet if we ignore love, we have to, or if we go to love as Jesus loves, we have to understand inevitably it makes us vulnerable. C.S. Lewis, many of you are very familiar with this, says there's no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to be sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. I love that. Not even to a pet. So if you want to protect your heart, you don't want to love, just protect your heart. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all the entanglements. Lock it up in a safe, the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken, but it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. Love will inevitably involve pain, and sadness. And so if this is true, why love? Because God first loved us. How do we love like Jesus? What do I do when I can't love like Jesus? I draw deep into him and say, I need you. I need you not just to save me and love me, but I need you to love through me because I don't have it in the tank. If it's based on me, I won't get far down the road of love. And so, what did my friend, the pastor in Nepal, Alicia, do after he felt the sadness? And he tells the story this way. He says, I felt very sad. I began to pray. So, troubles over here, coming at Alicia, he's suffering. He prays, he feels the sadness, he, he, he's crying out to God. And I said, well, then what happened? And he says, well, I realized as I was praying, I was not perfect. And so I realized in my relationship and the way that I led them, I needed to repent. And so I asked for forgiveness, and I, and, and I even asked their forgiveness in some things. And he said, and, and, and so trouble, he discovered, was also in him. And so he died to sin in Christ and allowed God to renew him. 
And then this dumbfounded me. I said, well, then what happened? He said, well, God moved my heart. So get this. The elders took people. They're down the street, literally. They got one speaker, and I don't know what else, the half of whatever it is. They're holding service. This is going on for months and months and months. And he said, uh, I felt like I needed to just move towards them in love. So in his heart, he forgave them. He told them, you may take whoever wants to go with you. They are not my people, but Christ. You can take whatever you want in the building because it's not mine to begin with. And so trouble's down the road, and he moved towards it in love. What if appropriate sadness in Christ, as we loved, moved us towards faith rather than anger? Usually we use, and when we get sad, we get angry. If I was Alicia, I would have just been angry and said, forget you guys, I'm locking the doors and you're not getting anything. And so what happens? Remember the J-curve as Jesus, you know, it's death, resurrection. Jesus felt the pain as he headed toward the cross. He died, and you remember, and we're, you're going to celebrate this soon, Good Friday, he died, and what happened after he died? Before Easter. What's in between? He died. No resurrection yet. What's going on? He was buried, and there's nothing going on. Now, yes, I know the Apostles' Creed, so we could talk about that later, but isn't it interesting that Jesus did not create the resurrection? The Father was the one who raised him from the dead. He had a choice whether he was willing to die. And then he literally, in that tomb, waited for the Father to raise him. Whenever we reenact the gospel, we don't have a choice of how and when the resurrection will happen. And the harder we try to make it happen in a relationship or a situation, the more frustrated we get because we don't have resurrection power. But we always have a choice to die. And when we die, it sometimes feels foolish, pointless, but we know deep down inside this is what Christ would want. And while we die, we wait and when we wait, that's an act of faith. God, this is stupid, but I trust you. God, I trust that somehow you're going to make this good because you are good. So I wait. Alicia waited. You know what happened? God began to change him. God began to shape the church. He did feel sadness, greater obedience. And then he finishes up the story. And he goes, oh yeah, I forgot. Um, eventually what happened was those guys down the street, they started arguing with each other. 
And one by one, they came back. They came back to the church, but they came back to me and they apologized. One by one by one. The last one, he said, and he didn't know, I kind of noticed this. He goes, um, and this guy was in our training, big beaming smile, last one. He was in my training, big beaming smile, owned a tiny business down the street, a, a hardware business. He says, uh, the last one that came back is the one who uh, built a house next to the church. And he said, he came back and he just repented before me. And he said, I'll do whatever you need me to do. And Alicia didn't even have to tell me that story because I could just see it all over this guy's face. There There was a genuine sense of joy. And so the beauty is, is is in verse 26, it says, if anyone loves Jesus and loves like him, it says the Father's going to honor him. And so, beloved, as you are following Jesus, I want you to learn to not only watch him, but as you watch him and he draws you into his life and calls you to follow him through life, death, and resurrection, to hang in there to feel the pain of love, and as you do, to draw into Jesus and say, I'm still willing to follow you because you are good and I trust you. And then wait and watch. And may God bring the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you that this church, these people here, have been watching you, Jesus. And in that sense, they've been watching you love week after week after week. And and, and, and it's overwhelming to know, Jesus, how you love, but it's also overwhelming to think about how am I going to love like you? And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that we would not be discouraged, but we would be encouraged because you love us so dearly. You, you did what was necessary to love us, but also you uh, live in us through your Spirit. And so... Apart from you, we can't do it, but Lord Jesus, with you, anything is possible. And so, Lord, as we come to the table a little bit later or very soon, uh, we're just reminded of how much we need you. We're reminded how beautiful you are, Lord Jesus. We're reminded just how much we want you. We want to look like you. And so we ask for that. I ask for that on behalf of this church. And that as this church loves like you do, Jesus, that this community, this city, would take notice and would just be drawn to the love of Jesus in and through the lives and uh, the, the, the continual lives of death as you bring resurrection. Thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.